I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Those are verses 22 to 26 of Psalm 22, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, August the 26th, 2022. There's a bunch of 22s in that that I just said. I wanted to read that part of that psalm today because one of the things that um, that Jesus speaks from the cross is the first words of that psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we could look at that and say, okay, has God actually forsaken him? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Was he forsaken? Well, the resurrection proves that he was not. But one of the things that, that he's doing here is quoting this psalm in order to throw their minds in that direction. So what, it, what, what it, the psalm says is essentially, yes, that's what it looks like, but it's not the reality because ultimately I will tell of your name in the great congregation. So it's obvious that God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the affliction, nor hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. And so that's an, uh, an important thing to realize when Jesus quotes that psalm, that he's not quoting just that one verse. Essentially, the way that a rabbi would teach would be to quote a part of something with the expectation that the students would know where it came from and, and what the rest of that was passage was saying. So anyway, just wanted to clear that up. Anyway, we're today we're continuing in book of Job chapter 9 verses 1 to 15 and then 32 to 35 in John's gospel chapter 7 verses 37 to 52 and in the book of the Acts of the Apostles chapter 10 verses 34 to 38. So yesterday we read about Bildad, Bildad who undertook to lecture Job about all manner of things, including, well, you know, your children must have sinned, and therefore, well, you know, it didn't turn out well for them. I mean, what a horrible, horrible thing for him to say. So now Job's going to respond again. Truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He's wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? I mean, God is, he is omniscient, He's wise in heart, and he's mighty in strength. He's omnipotent. What would be the point in trying to dispute with God, who knows everything and is so much more powerful than we are, that we're just like nothing in his sight, except he created us in his image and then sent his son to die for us. So, but, but what Joe is saying, that this is a failed enterprise to argue with God. He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it doesn't rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the seas, who made the bear and Orion, the, the constellations, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Really? I'm supposed to contend with him? How would that go? I mean, you can't even possibly imagine it. What a ridiculous thing that would be is what he's saying. Behold, he passes me by, by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? 
So he, he says, you know, I, I'm so inured to life. Life is so difficult that God can do anything he wants, and he's proving it through me that he can do anything that he chooses to do, and there's nothing we can do to stop him. It's a hopeless sort of life. And he says, I don't even perceive the Lord anymore. I'm so lost in my pain, in, in all the varieties of pain that he's going through. He says, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I'm in the right, I can't answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. So who is he speaking of here? I mean, what he's saying is, is that I've done nothing wrong. And my case is exactly that. I've done nothing to deserve the, the, quote, evil that's befallen me. And there would be no point. I mean, what would God do? Would he say, okay, you're right, I'm wrong? That's kind of his point here. He said, all I can do is ask for mercy. That's all. That is absolutely all. I stand before this holy, omnipotent, omniscient God, and all I can do is beg him for mercy. For he's not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. I mean, what he's saying is is that it's an absolute misery, and I've done nothing to deserve all that's befallen me here. And I would love to come and stand before the Lord and say, I just need an explanation of this. I've done nothing wrong. And so what he's doing is he's exposing his own theology here, and it's the same theology that, that his accusers have, right? Their, their argument is, you've sinned, therefore this happened to you, or your children sinned, therefore it happened to them. It, Job's saying, no, none of that's true, therefore none of this should have happened. They still believe in this sort of cause and effect rather than life, living in a sinful world is the response of all these things. And so that's that's the problem that, that Job has with his suffering. He's trying to explain it in terms of it, there should be some cause and effect between the way I act, the way I worship, and what happens to me. There always has been. You know, I did all the right things, and therefore I prospered, or the other way around, whichever way it was, I prospered, therefore I did the right things. And then I had a, an expectation that things would continue in that way, and, and now I can't understand what's going on, because I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't change anything up from what I'd been doing, and then suddenly it all fell to pieces. It doesn't make any sense. And so that, that, that theology lives in all of us. <laughs> it's kind of the way we think things work, it, but it's not because we live in a sinful, fallen, busted, and broken world. In the gospel today, Jesus is the last day of the feast with Feast of Booths. With the, what happens on this day is, is that, that it's right at the end of the dry season, so the expectation is rainy season will start anytime soon. And one of the things they do is they, they pour out all the stored water they have in the expectations God's going to provide, and so they won't need that water that it's a, it's a dual sort of a thing. First, it's a celebration of the plenty he provided, that enough that we have some to pour out now, and then the expectation that God's going to fulfill his, quote, obligation that he promised to them that he would provide the rain in its due season. So that's the, the setting for that is this great moment of faith 
that's that's being expressed here and so jesus comes on the last day of the feast the great day he stood up and cried out if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink whoever believes in me as the scripture is said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water so this is the same kind of thing that he had told the woman samaritan woman at the well so that he's using the imagery that's present around him and in making this gracious offer because of what he's seen this time. So remember the last time that we saw him in Jerusalem? He Well, not the last time, that was John 5, but in John 2, when he originally went to, to Jerusalem, met with Nicodemus and all that, and then he leaves Jerusalem at the end of chapter 3, and what we're told is, is, is that then he wouldn't entrust himself to people because he knew it was in the heart of men. And here, now he is entrusting himself. He's offering something here that, that no one could have even begun to imagine. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. She, he's asking them to believe in him. Huh. Well, that's an interesting moment because they've been doubting. They couldn't figure out who he was. And so they continue to have this question. Now, this he said about the spirit, the, 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 these living waters, whom those believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus has not yet glorified. So his time, what, what does it mean for Jesus' time to come? Well, first, it, it's the trial, it's the crucifixion, but then also his time includes the resurrection, the ascension, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So we get this this statement from John who, who understands in retrospect what this statement means about rivers of living water flowing from the heart of believers. He, he's explaining it now. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. And those are two different figures. They're both important Old Testament figures because the prophet is the one Moses um, said would, would rise up from among their brothers and they were to listen to him. And then the Christ is the Messiah, the son of David, who will sit on the Davidic throne throughout eternity. And so there, there's a division between those two, but there's it's a distinction that has a difference, but but it points in the same direction. And then finally, people said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? So they're going to, again, fall back on this one thing that they, quote, know that they're not actually correct about. Hasn't the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from the Bethlehem, the village where David was, which is where Jesus was born because of the census? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, no one's ever spoken like this man. He's making claims we've never heard. He, he's saying things that resonate with us as true. And so we couldn't arrest him because that would feel really strange that we, if we arrested the Messiah. This guy is unique. No one's ever spoken like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? That's apparently the measure of whether something's true or not, is whether the Pharisees or the authorities believe in him. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And it's primarily this crowd of people who don't fit those um, designations just previously made, the Pharisees and the authorities, but it also includes these people who have come for the festival to Jerusalem, and they, and they say they have no knowledge of the law. And they're accursed. Wow. Well, if you're the rulers and authorities, the fact that those people don't know anything about the law lands at your feet. 
because it's your responsibility to teach that. And apparently they failed, and so they're they're sneering at these people that they see as beneath themselves. Nicodemus, who had gone out to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? In other words, you're just judging from afar. You're not even watching what he's doing. You're not even listening to his words at this point. You're just making a judgment that you don't like it, and you don't like him, but you haven't given it a fair airing of his case. And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, there you go. That, that, that's, the, that's the final argument is, is where he's from. And it's always the final argument is, is where is Jesus from? Well, he's from Galilee, therefore he, he's not a, he can't be anything of value at all because he's from Galilee. And, and Nicodemus had just said, does it make any sense? Because our law doesn't judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. Well, what's their judgment based in? Their judgment's based in one thing. He's from Galilee. We know that. Well, he wasn't really. He was born in Bethlehem. He lived in Galilee. But it, but that's all they've got. It's not based in anything like a, a, a proper hearing would be. In the epistle today, in the book of Acts, Peter opened his mouth. He's at the home of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. That Remember, an angel appeared to Cornelius and said, go send for this guy Peter, or Simon, who's staying at the home of Simon the Tanner over in Joppa, and so he sends people. Peter Peter gets a similar kind of a vision that there's, there's men downstairs waiting, and he's supposed to go with them, but before that, he'd been given this vision of this sheet coming down out of heaven with all kinds of animals, quote, clean and unclean, which would essentially just means prohibited and, and, and allowed to eat, and Peter is told to rise, kill, and eat. So now he comes and stands before Cornelius, and he's making the application for that first vision of the sheet with the animals in it. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, that, that's a carefully parsed set of words, because what does it mean? He's, they're acceptable to God. What does it mean to be acceptable to God, and how do you get into this new covenant community? And is it a new covenant community, or is it the old covenant community, and now God's doing something here, we're not quite sure what, with you Gentiles? You haven't been circumcised and become Jews, uh, so he, we, we know now that, that you're acceptable to him. And we believe that because, well, you got a vision of an angel that said that it was acceptable, and then I got a vision that said, go see these people. So as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism Jesus proclaimed, or John proclaimed, sorry. So you, you know the story is what he's saying, but what he's saying is, is this is the word he sent to Israel. And so when he speaks of all Judea and in Galilee, he's speaking very specifically about Jews. How, so you know these things, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. In other words, Peter's affirming a bodily resurrection. We ate and drank with him. We know that this was a body. This was not some spirit. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So when he says everyone who believes, is he incorporating the Gentiles? Does does he believe that that's how they can receive forgiveness, is in the name of Jesus, rather than the sacrificial system, rather than anything to do with Judaism? So he's, he's saying everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in Jesus, that's, that's Peter's burgeoning theology here, because he's, he's having to figure this out on the fly in two different occasions. He had to figure it out on the day of Pentecost, and now he's got to figure it out. What does it mean that the Gentiles want to know this? So how do I preach the gospel to them, and what do I do about incorporating them into the community? Well, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on the Gentiles. So they were confused. They didn't see this happening. They didn't imagine that the Gentiles were going to participate in the same way they did. Maybe they thought they'd get some sort of junior Holy Spirit or whatever and th- that would serve to get them to the point where they could be circumcised. But, but they were amazed because they see the exact same effect in the Gentiles who were uncircumcised that they see in other Jews. It's a very confusing thing for them. They didn't expect this. They, they expected the inclusion of the Gentiles. They didn't expect it to be quite this way, though. They would just be sort of side beneficiaries, and that's the way that, that if, if you wanted to convert to Judaism today, you would go and you'd talk to a rabbi, and the rabbi would first basically say to you, you don't want to become a Jew. There's 613 laws. Look, you just stay on your side of the fence, and in the Noahide covenant that you belong to, this is a covenant with all flesh, then, then you just keep those seven laws. I mean, these are simple, straightforward things. Just keep those things. And if you do that, then you'll participate in the life of the world to come. Not at the level we will, because we're his chosen people, but, but you, you'll still participate. And so that's the issue here is, is that they're looking at it now and saying, well, wait a minute. They seem to get exactly the same, quote, benefit that we do. God doesn't seem to make any distinction between Jew and Gentile here when he gives the Holy Spirit. They get the same Holy Spirit and the same gifts that we did. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, just like happened on the day of Pentecost. Here's the Gentile day of Pentecost. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So, in other words, yeah, we, we told our fellow Jews on the day of Pentecost what we've always told them and what we've been preaching ever since that day is, is that how do you get forgiveness of sins and how do you get brought into, into this community of believers in Jesus as the Messiah. Well, you do that through baptism. And God gave the Holy Spirit here first to these people in order that Peter could then look and go, well, God seems to have already accepted them, and he's already blessed them. So, you know, I guess, really and truly, the only thing we can do is baptize them. We're just going to lay hands on them, baptize them, and, and, and confirm and affirm what God's done already. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, this would be a challenge for Peter, and Peter will be challenged about it. (laughs) When he goes to Jerusalem, he'll have to answer for what happened here, and he gives a good answer. He does well for himself. He's faithful, 
and is still a little bit dumbfounded by what's happened here because nobody expected this to be the result, that God would give his Holy Spirit before these people did the things that people were already kind of believing were necessary to come into this community. You'd have to, do, you'd have to become a Jew first, and then you can become a Christian, let's say, even though that name had not yet been given to this group. So God just jumped right on past that whole circumcision thing, and that's going to cause a problem for the early church. They've got to figure out what God's doing and what he's saying by doing this very thing of, of jumping over and skipping the step of circumcision to include these Gentiles in the covenant community. And, and it's it's never an easy thing to figure out, well, wait a minute, God jumped out of the box that we thought he was in, right? And so th- it happens all the time. It happened for me when I went to Pauly's Island the first time, and, and I, I had always kind of looked askance at people who, who worshiped with their hands in the air, and then it was like, why is it that way? Well, it's because I'm kind of bound up and I don't tend to be that guy. But then God did a work, right, and changed me. And then he showed me other things. He showed me healings. He showed me other gifts of the Spirit that that absolutely changed the way I thought about what Christianity was and what it meant to have new life now. 